Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome back to Boss and Cage Podcast. Today's show is, is going to be a, a pretty interesting show because this individual that I'm speaking to is, is kind of like listening to his bio and, and doing some research and looking at his LinkedIn profile. And you kind of see like he he's, has all these different multifaceted aspects to him. So I'm going to deem him the measurable boss. And as we continue this conversation, you're going to see why. Because I mean, obviously, he's all about the measurements, right? He, he's establishing like the bar of where you are and where you need to be. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about who you are and what you do, Alex? Hi, um, thank you. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my name is uh, Alex Castro. I'm uh, CEO of uh, Mcorp. We've been in business. We're in our 19th year uh, right now. We do a lot of uh, technology strategy consulting uh, globally. And um, what we have found is that, um, as the listener here is is uh, you know taking this in, um, that a lot of great ideas are not making it to market successfully enough or fast enough. And in that context, we find that if you can leverage some critical data uh, early on, it starts to clear the path for execution, right? Because there's that simple saying that uh, vision without execution is hallucination, right? So there's this, there's this gap in taking the concept and really getting it to market. And I think that's where where uh, most entities struggle, regardless of whether you're an entrepreneur or you're leading uh, a Fortune 10 company, um, execution is is sort of the bane of your existence <laughs> in many ways. And so we figured out how to quantify a lot of that data um, and helps you steer and make more data-driven decisions. Got it. So, I mean, when, when you say data, I think, I mean, the, the average person hears data and they automatically get the deer in the headlights and it's, it's fearful. There's so much information. What do I, hell do I do with all this content? So you're talking about systematizing data. Like, what does that system really look like? I mean, like, what kind of data are you capturing? And then what are you guys doing with that data? Yeah, what a great question. Um, the thing that, you know, we have to really take a look at is that um, there are there are steps in a process, right? So there's understanding your capability to execute. So you may have as an entrepreneur, a really great idea and it's strong. You can see, you know, I always kind of look at it from the context of, you know, you're the running back and you can see the gap in the line, right? That you're, you're going to get through that hole and you're going to, you're going to get some yards, right? Um, the difficulty that happens is that you can't, in a lot of ways, because of the speed of play, because of the speed of the market right now, and that there are so many different factors that hinder your ability to move, that you can't see all of the different things that are going to impact you or blindside you in the process. So the, the first thing that we really talk a lot about is how do you measure the alignment of your execution capability to the idea? Right. How can you met, you know, metric out what exactly uh, within your execution or operational capacity is not there uh, or not in alignment? So when you go to the doing, you're not sitting there in a state of damage control and you can see that window closing and closing and closing and closing and that opportunity 
uh, and potential really just slipping away. So that's number one. Number two is the ability to truly articulate your vision in a way that you can hand it to somebody and say, I want you to go and do this. Build me this product. Let's go get this acquisition. Let's go to market with this information or um, you know, produce some, some online content. And the third part is uh, a little bit more robust, which is um, in many operations, they're broken down into three fundamental components um, in every operation. There is collect, analyze, and act. We all do that process right now. Right? So as an example, this podcast is a collect, right? You know, we're having a conversation, we're collecting information. The listener is going to go then and analyze that information, right? And begin to process what that value is to them. And then they're going to go create action from it, potentially, right? And so that's that cascading effect that happens in every operational environment. And what we really focus on a lot is saying, look, in that data collection process, do you really have to invest in the development of the technology and process to collect that information? Or do you just need to buy the data so that you can do the analyze and act part? Because that's where all of the the mojo happens. That's where all of the, the, the movement happens. The collection part is, you know, really time consuming and, and um, costly to a business. Definitely very, very interesting. I mean, obviously you're an analytical guy, right? So with that, let's just dive into you a little bit more. Like if you could define yourself in three to five words, what would those three to five words be? You know, I would, I would say that, um, I would say that then I, I am an optimist with reservations, <laughs> you know, in the sense that it's, it's, um, you know, the beautiful thing that's happened in the last 10 years is that, you know, when, when I was up and coming as a young uh, professional, it, you know, all I could, all I could uh, look for is for people just to get out of the way. Right. You know, because, when I, when I was in school, there was all of this rigor and process, and then you come out of school, and then you have this attitude. You know, I came out of the East Coast, and so uh, you, you get into this attitude. It's like you have, to earn, you have to earn the right to go do something, right? It's like, well, you always get that question. It's like, well, what do you know? You know, just go do that job for two, three years, learn those basic things, then move on to the next thing, then move on to the next thing, as if there's like this you know, uh, metocracy that's going on that you have to, like, you have to earn your way through it. And I think that what, where we are today is that that doesn't necessarily exist anymore. You know, this, that meritocracy is, is not as rigid as it used to be. I think that there's opportunities to do uh, a lot of great things, but what really gets missed in a lot of ways, the thing that, that hits uh, is, is that you have to actually do the idea. You can't just sit there and, you know, around your friends and talk about how great your idea is, how great the opportunity is, right? It's one thing to see it. It's another thing to actually actualize it. And I think that that's where I, I feel, you know, very uh, opportunistic, very, very positive about those things. And I think that there's still a little bit of a lost understanding of what it takes to carry something through all the way. Um, the amount of heavy lifting that you have to do and how unrewarding a lot of that lifting is, right? Um, and so I think that that's, you know, that's, you know, I really appreciate the amount of innovation coming out of people today. Um, I think it's fantastic. Um, what's really 
unfortunate is that people still look at the doing part of like, well, I thought of all the hard part. I, got, I came up with the idea. Now, now you guys go do an execute. And it's like, yeah, no, the, the idea is the actual, the easy part. <laughs> Getting it done is very, very difficult. And that's where the, the, the grind, you know, comes into play. And it comes into play in the context that, you know, just, uh, um, you know, it's persistence, you know, and how are you going to get through there? But it's also about the information you use in that persistence. You can't just go out and hammer away, right? You have to actually leverage insight and information today because the markets move too fast and you get one shot. You don't get a chance to go back and retrench. So I think that's where, um, where I see that that's where my skepticism is a little bit. So, I mean, I think just taking that like a slice of, of what you said, right? And I think it's very important. You're talking about innovation and your company, M Corp. Essentially, I think you guys have multiple different aspects of, of that particular statement, right? I mean, you have books, right? You also have mm-hmm. um, software. You have a couple of different systems in place. So, like, let's talk about this. Break that, like, that business apart. So, if I'm a new person, right, and, and if I become a client of yours, like, what systems do you have? And, like, how am I going to go from where I'm at right now to, like, point? Point two or point three, right? Um, thank you for that. Um, the the thing that I I really again go to is that you know having been in business, you know again we're in our business in our nineteenth year, and what we find is that um, there is this sort of a lack of real understanding of all the factors that it takes to uh, execute on an idea, right? So as I was saying earlier, we, you know, we, we took, we've done, we've done hundreds and hundreds of projects throughout the world. Um, we've delivered about $4 billion in total client value uh, over our uh, 18, 19 year history here. And, you know, we've worked in banking, manufacturing, public sector, finance, and, you know, the thing that repeatedly gets ignored is, again, the execution side of things. You know, I'm very much an execution person. Right? It's great to talk about stuff. It's really great to, you know, like as I was saying, there's a lot of great innovation going on. But, you know, for those, you know, for the listener who's a small business, who's, you know, an entrepreneur or somebody coming into the market, maybe you're young, right? Maybe you're somebody who's... Um, you know, been uh, in uh, a larger entity and, you know, broken out on your own. The reality is that those people, the people who have, who muscle things through in that top 10% of the S&P do it because they have the capital and the girth to do it, right? They have the weight behind them. They can, they can hammer a problem until it shapes into what they want it to be, right? If you're, if you're a Walmart, if you're an Amazon, right? They have very efficient processes to begin with. But if they run into a problem with something, they don't have these deep tipping points where they say, you know, uh, I don't know if we can really afford to move forward. They just, if they believe in it enough, they can apply a lot of weight to that situation and push it through. For the rest of us, (laughs) we have to be much more surgical in how we do it. And so what we offer in that context in, in, trying to, in trying to adjust for that is, again, it's very fundamental. Are you in alignment with your idea? Right? Do you actually have the capability to do things? And so what I talked about 
uh, earlier translates to what I talk to executives about today uh, fairly regularly is that when you build a, an operating environment, when you build a business today, and you need that business to grow to that next level, to, to kind of take it to that, that maturity, right? So you've come up with the next great idea, or you want to you expand your business in some capacity, move to the next step. The biggest mistake that most people make is that they feel that the existing infrastructure they have today can actually do what they need to do tomorrow. And that doesn't work because what you've built today is optimized to today's need. The minute that you begin to aggressively push up that sort of up into the right line, what happens is that you start to, you start to outgrow your existing people, process, and technology. And you have to figure out how much gap there is between that future state that you want to be, that next iteration of your business, and who you are today. And that gap delineates uh, how much replacement that you need in people, process, and technology. And if you don't recognize that early on, and you are in the throes of execution and, and are hitting those blind spots, you're slowly just going to get eroded and eventually kind of fall to the wayside. Because the timetable against your resource base is not going to align. And so as a result, your wonderful idea, your wonderful innovation, your wonderful business plan is going to begin to just get chipped away. And you'll get to either, you're either going to sacrifice the depth of what it can do just to be able to, you know, get it there, uh, or you're going to have to abandon it. And so what we do is we help in coaching that process along and measuring those elements so that you actually know where is the gap in capability so you can correct that before you begin your execution process. And what we find is our clients typically deliver about twice as fast because of that, because they're not in damage control mode the minute they go into the execution of their idea. Very interesting philosophy. I mean, I mean, just listening to you speak, right? I mean, and, and hearing like your philosophies and hearing like your structure and hearing like your business processes. I want to time travel back and kind of figure out like, what were you like as a kid? Like, were you this analytical <laughs> growing up? Like, I mean, seriously, like, what were you like as a kid? Man, I was, uh, I am, I am the child of immigrant parents. Mm -hmm. And I was awkward. I was, um, still am in some ways. Uh, I was, um, you know, my parents, you know, came from a generation where uh, you, you know, you, you just needed to do, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of like, you know, that's okay. And <laughs> you'll get them next time. You know, it's, it's like, you had to get it the first go around. And if you didn't, you were, you know, you were pretty, you pretty heavily laid into. And, you know, I can, I can also imagine that, you know, the listener who may have immigrant, you know, parents or may have immigrated here. The other part of, of, of coming from an immigrant family is that you have, you come from a very, a, a culture of very low risk, right? In the sense that it's like every decision takes a long time. Um, I was regularly reminded that, you know, we are the only people in this country that all of our family was living somewhere else. There was no safety net. There was nobody else. Like we couldn't, you know, turn to an uncle or an aunt or, a, you know, some other sibling or whatever for, for help. Um, and so that there was this very, like, just, just do this very basic thing, be solid, 
don't take risk, that kind of a thing. Unfortunately, it doesn't fit my personality. You know, my father was a physicist and, and he developed satellite systems for, you know, the military and aircrafts and, you know, all these kinds of things. And, um, and so, so, you know, there was just a very much a clash in personality types against that sort of piece. And so it was, uh, you know, in many ways, you know, my late teens and, and the bulk of my 20s were, were spent in a process of, of uh, getting the chip off my shoulder and uh, a lot of self-exploration um, and trying to figure out how to navigate my way through the world. Um, and unfortunately, you know, it's like I learned a lot, but unfortunately I feel like I, I wasted a lot of time in my youth, you know, I could have been much more productive in my twenties, but I needed to, I needed to find myself. And, um, it is what it is, but yeah. Based on what you just said, I mean, about your dad, I mean, you know, the whole navigating part of it, right. It's kind of a, a pretty interesting play on words, considering that your dad was building satellites. But I think that, you know, to your dad's credit, I think you got your analytical savviness from your dad. I mean, like taking what he's done in that spectrum and you taking it more to business. I mean, obviously I think you could do exactly what your dad did, but you're doing it in a different way and you're just as analytical possibly as your dad was. And correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I, I, I could be talking out my ass here, but I mean, is no, that no, yeah. a true statement? Well, you know, it's like anything else. The apple never falls far, right? So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's just using it in a different way, I think. Mm. And, um, you know, it's by nature, I am, I am a tremendously impatient person. Um, and I, you know, in fact, I was, I was on a call, um, last night with our senior leadership team. Uh, and, um, yeah, I was really, I was really pushing, I was really pushing pretty hard because I had reached sort of my sort of tipping point in my patience threshold and that empathy, you know, as part of a, being a leader, you know, as a CEO, it's like, you have to have this very empathetic process to, um, um, you know, leading. And I just had, kind of hit my threshold on it. And I was like, we're moving too slow. We got to, we've got to go from now to 10 X speed in the next, you know, two, three weeks on this one specific topic. And um, I think it's that impatience that in many ways helped me uh, or guided my path as a, as a business owner. Um, but also, you know, it creates a lot of, um, you know, it's created a lot of challenges in my life in that, in that space as well, because old, you know, when you're coming up, older people are not terribly, uh, they're not patient with your impatience. And, uh, so you have to fight through, through some of those things. So, yeah. I mean, talking about being being impatient, I think that that's a really solid segue for this next question, right? I mean, in reality, the perception of someone that's now meeting you for the first time may hear about your successes and, and perceive them to be an overnight success. But in reality, with your impatience, how long have you been on your journey to get to where you are currently? So I, I heard, uh, I was listening to uh, uh, an audio book. I, you know, I, I consume a lot of books through audio um, and uh, probably a couple, couple of books a week. and. I was listening to this uh, sort of reflective book and there was, the example was Pablo Picasso was sitting at a cafe and he was doodling on a napkin. And there was a woman at the table next door to him that um, was watching him draw this amazing little sketch on this napkin. And he was about to crumple it up and throw it away. And the woman came over and said, Hey, look, can you not throw away that, 
can I, can I just pay you for that napkin? Cause that looks amazing. And, and Pablo Picasso says, Oh, okay, sure. And, and she says, how much you know, would you like for it? And he said, $20,000. And she's like, what? And she's like, it, you just drew that in the last five, 10 minutes. It's like, how can you charge me $20,000 for something you drew in the last five, 10 minutes? And Picasso's answer was, that sketch didn't take me 10 minutes. It took me 30 years. Right? And so, you know, there is this misperception of what it takes to get to a certain point. You know, I think that in many ways, you know, while we celebrate a lot of these folks who have these very rapid startup elements, that suddenly become very successful and, and make a lot of money out the gate. In many ways, those were um, just great timing, right? Good idea with great timing. For the other 99% of us, right, we're going to have to, we're going to have to learn our way through the process. And so I think that it's, it's really kind of taking in and, you know, it, it's, it, it's like many of those sayings, right? It's not about getting knocked down. It's how you get up. You know, it's, you have to continue the persistence of moving forward. You, you have to, um, you have to really look at the context of what you're trying to do is that your objective is larger than any of single event that happens in your life along the way. Um, and, and then how do you balance that out? You know, the biggest balance for me was having daughters, right? I mean, I used to be a very hard, very hard nosed, you know, driven you know, kind of individual, you know, and, and when I was younger and in many ways, very uh, irresponsibly, you know, ruthless about stuff and, and, you know, not in a terrible way, but just was com just completely focused on my, on my objective. And once I had daughters, it was like, you know, that hard crusty shell melted off and actually became, you know, a better person. And when you lean into things like that, it's what can it really actually help you evolve to becoming the type of leader, innovator, um, industry leader that you want to be, right? You have to lean into those things and not simply deflect everything simply for the goal. So there's some balance in there. I mean, talking about the balance, and I think earlier on you alluded to kind of like some mistakes that you had made earlier on. So like this next question, if you could time travel, right, and go back in time, and you have one opportunity and you have five minutes, where would you go back to what and what would you do? <laughs> I think, you know, uh, to be very honest, I don't, I am where I am today because of the experiences and uh, the decisions that I've made. And um, could I be further along? I, I don't know. You know, could I be wealthier? Uh, maybe. You know, could I be more X, Y, Z? Okay. Um, I think the thing that I would probably do is time travel for five minutes somewhere into. Uh, my early thirties and just really take the moment to soak it in and pay attention to what was going around me rather than being tunnel visioned, you know, because when you're building a business and you have two kids under five years old and you have all the challenges of life going on and the demands on you as an individual, you just become so uh, robotic. And some things and um, 
You know, I, I can still feel my daughters in my arms as little girls, you know, and, and their little hands in mine and things like that. And, and I miss those things. Um, so I would, I would just simply take the time to go back and just pick my chin up a little bit and look around and soak it in um, and, and really take that memory forward with me. While we're still on this, this time traveling, right? I mean, you talked about your dad, right? And you talked about your dad, yeah. not necessarily was an entrepreneur, but obviously you are a hell of an entrepreneur. You're very savvy in what you're doing. And like you said, at times you could be very cutthroat as well. So in that history, like, where is that coming from? Is there anyone in your family that you could think to that was potentially an entrepreneur throughout your life? You know, I mean, when I, when I look back, um, and I don't know if the, the listener can, can relate to this, you know, I, I used to, especially, you know, as a, as a child of immigrants, I used to ask so many questions about, um, you know, what about this? What about, I mean, I had grandparents, uh, on my mom's side of the family are Hungarian. You know, my dad's side of the family are sort of French Basque, right? So that's where the Castro comes from, right? And, and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, my grandfather had six uh, siblings. My mother's father had like six siblings from, from, you know, from the old country. And he didn't know where any of them were, you know, kind of a thing. And when you, when you, Look, when I look back and I asked all those questions and poking at things, you know, it was interesting to really reveal because what we tend to do is curate how we look to our children and we, how we look to other people, right? We have this curation thing that we want to look as if we're flawless or completely capable and, and we're doing all of these amazing things. And the reality is that ourselves, as much as our predecessors, are a big hot mess of activity that kind of bounced around and meandered. And when you start to really pick away at it, you start to realize that, you know, as, as, conservative, as conservative as they were and as, um, uh, you know, rooted in a lot of very fundamental uh, behaviors, you know, they were exhibiting a lot of very entrepreneurial behaviors themselves. And you know, they just didn't have the, the vehicle, which is this country, United States, that gives you the access to do that. You know, when you're, when you're in a, you know, in a much more traditional environment, it can be very uh, stifling. You know, it's like the, the, the fight through the woods is just too much, you know, and so you just kind of go along with what, what's there. Um, so I think that there was, you know, there were these glimpses of it there. Um, I think that being in this country afforded me the flexibility to go off and, you know, and, and push and do. Um, and I think that's the, you know, if I were in a, in a different country, I don't know that I would have had you know, this, this type of opportunity, I would have been in a much more regimented um, career, I think. That's interesting. I mean, you, you talked about your daughters. So, I mean, obviously being an entrepreneur and looking at your business and the way it's structured and you have multiple different assets and multiple different facets to it, like how do you currently juggle like your work life with your family life? You know, it's, um, there, you know, people always talk about this work-life balance kind of situation. And I just don't think that exists anymore. Um, you know, I think it's work-life integration and, um, like right now my days average about 12 hours a day, um, about six days a week. You know, I'm, you know, I'm 30 years, 30, 
plus years into a career. Um, you know, I have, you know, uh, close to 300 employees across the U S. Um, and I'm still, I'm still working 12 hours a day, you know, and it's, it's just the, the level of work has changed. Um, but when you're in a leadership position, it's very exciting. It's very nice. It's, you know, it's very, it's an, it's a luxury to be on a call or in a room where people are looking at you and saying, all right, you know, we want to hear what you have to say. Um, but the preparation to get there, you know, is a lot, right? You, you can't just regurgitate some statistic on, uh, a report. You can't simply uh, be parroting what somebody else in the organization has said, or somebody in the in the in the industry has said. Like you actually need to synthesize a lot of information very quickly. I kind of I, I call it the wood chipper, right? It's like a good leader is a wood chipper, right? It's you know it's it's not the content that's coming in, right? It's the ability to process that content. And you know I talk about this with a lot of leaders that they talk about their gut instincts they talk about their their you know my gut's telling me this you know my my history's telling me that you know i've had this experience you know and i call bs on that i'm like you have not been in this situation right now you have never been in this situation right now right the conditions are different the people are different the outcome is going to be different what you have is the ability to ingest information and process it faster and maybe watershed away the stuff that really doesn't matter or you don't need to think about. And that's what begins to shift the difference between people who can do and people who get stuck, right? Because we all know that person overthinks everything, the analysis paralysis, the, you know, the person gets entrenched, right? Because they're a bad wood chipper. Right. A good wood chipper just takes in those logs, you know, those branches, and it just rips through them and creates a product very consistently on the other side, right? But that, that wood chipper doesn't know whether it's a birch tree, an oak tree, a, a bush, you know, whatever coming in in the door, right? It just knows to process that information. And I think that if, if you know, the listener can take one thing away is like just become the best wood chipper in the world, right? Learn how not to say it's my gut telling me this. Learn to say that I am taking in information openly. I'm taking data in openly. And I am processing it based on my refined skill to ingest and process that and put it out as a consistent product. And so I think that that's, you know, largely um, what drives in the end you know, a successful career or what you want to be a successful career, or successful outcome for what you want to do. Um, cause there, there's just way too many moving parts and your gut, your, your gut's wrong eight out of 10 times. I can't tell you how many books, papers, studies, conferences are dedicated to your biases <laughs> and how horrible of a decision maker a human being is. And and so the thing that we need to learn is like, how do we process information better? How do we do it more efficiently in a way that produces consistent outcomes? But um, yeah, I think that that's you know, the biggest thing I can share there. 
Well, I'm, I'm just listening. I mean, I think that is definitely an interesting philosophy. And I'm just trying to like, you know, figure out like with that, right? I mean, obviously to your point, a lot of people saying it's their gut and sometimes their gut has been right before, but I think sure. it goes back to like repetition, right? I mean, it, is it more so repetition of that person's gut or is it more so repetition of their systems that they have in place and those systems have worked for them? So like my next question based upon that is kind of like you're a systems guy, right? So mm-hmm. you're routinely making these decisions but how do your morning routines play into your daily decisions? What are your morning routines and what does that look like for you on a routine basis? <laughs> yeah, my routines are, um, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more routine based I get, you know, in the sense that it's like, I, I, I like this, you know, cause you know, when you're bouncing all over the country, it's like, I have just this rhythm that I work by on a daily and you know, it's, it's getting exercise early in the morning. It's having that cup of coffee, you know, decompressing a little bit, you know, uh, not just jumping straight into stuff. Um, and then really ramping up to where I know the apex of my capabilities are in a day. You know, there, (laughs) there are times in the day that I know where I'm very, very good (laughs) And and everything there is like a, you know, sort of a, uh, a percentage of that, you know, it's a, uh, and so it's knowing how to like plan critical parts of your day into where I can apex in my, in, in being my best skilled professional self in that context. Um, so it's, you know, it's very, it's very measured in that, in, in that way. Um, and uh unfortunately it's just, you know, you start to reflect on yourself. It's like, really, am I this patterned out, you know, in, in how I behave, but um, look, I mean, it, it's, it, you know, to think that you know the situation you're in on any given point, at any given day, and think that you have domain or control over that situation, it's just, I, I don't, I don't see that as a successful formula. I mean, if you go to Warren Buffett and you asked him, it's like, what's the formula? Warren, tell me the formula of how you review and, and look at everything. He's going to look at you and like, there is no formula, right? There's no like static thing. I take information in, I process the information, right? And, you know, I collect, analyze, act, right? So I collect information in a particular way because I've done this for, you know, I'm Warren Buffett. I've done this for 60 years. I figured out what I need to know, what I don't need to know. I process that information in a, through my wood chipper. I know what I'm doing. And then I produce an outcome. And Warren Buffett will be the first person to tell you, or Bill Gates, or uh, Elon Musk, or uh, Jeff Bezos, anybody will tell you, I fail more than I succeed. Right? And so the reality is that, you know, saying that I'm going to walk into a room, I know exactly what to do, I know exactly what to say, and I know exactly how to do everything no right it's it's constantly this delicate dance in that context and so when can you do that you know for me it's like when can i do that optimally you know and trust me there are situations where i'm in not my most uh productive time but i'm still being challenged with having to be you know at my sharpest in a conversation or in a situation and you just have to adapt but um you know, between repetition and understanding that it's, 
there is, you know, there is no same situation. Your gut is going to be wrong eight to nine times out of 10, bottom line. And if you really doubt that, just start Googling cognitive bias. Go out there, start to read the hundreds of articles, the, the, the issues in Harvard Business Review dedicated to this, the books dedicated to this of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of case studies that show that your gut doesn't tell you anything. It's your ability to process the data and really look at it in an unbiased way. That's what in the end will guide you the best. I think that, that that's, that's a hell of a statement. And, and just pulling back what you said about like Warren Buffett. And I think earlier on in this conversation, you were talking about the books that you're reading and anyone that knows anything about Warren. I mean, that's the first thing that Warren does every single day. He reads like every single newspaper. He reads all the articles. He reads everything. And then he mm -hmm. makes a conscious decision on that day-to-day -day basis. So you're saying that you read a lot of audio books as well. So my next question is a three-part question to you about that, right? First part is, you know, what books did you read on your journey to help you get to where you are? The second part is like, what books are you actively listening to right now? And the third part, I know you're an author, so let's talk about your book a little bit. Yeah, you bet. Um, so, you know, I, uh, where I really started getting more traction in my uh, professional life is when I, when I started really reading more uh, books about maturing my emotional intelligence, my EQ. Right. And, and really being able to understand um, and hear people around me and not being reactive uh, around what they're telling me. I mean, I still have those moments. Everybody does. Where where I found a lot of it was finding, you know, being able to find that that uh, that peace and rhythm internally, that everything was not a challenge to my authority. Right. And actually being able to see the conversation for what it is. That's hard. That's like, that's a lifelong thing. It's really, really hard um, because it's very easy to feel when somebody comes back and questions something that you're doing or saying or have produced to not be defensive or want to attack that individual for, you know, who, what gives you the right to do that, right? In, in every instance, you know, I try to really take a, you know, what I've learned from those books is really being take a, a position back and say, look, there's an opportunity, there's a nugget of lesson in here that I can take away, you know, and it's just kind of, you know, finding that. So early on, there was a lot of that, um, that learning process and, and just maturing my own emotional intelligence in, in what I was doing, right? And finding, um, finding empathy, you know, Simon Sinek talks about that quite a bit. You know, it's fine as being, as being a leader, finding that empathy and what needs to happen. Um, outside of that, I read, you know, I did a lot of reading from Malcolm Gladwell. I love a good story, you know, and he really helps contextualize a lot of the content that he does. And so in his books, so, you know, listener, if you, you know, if you, if you haven't, you know, give Malcolm Gladwell some, you know, give a, give it a try. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, it, he, he really weaves together a very nice story in that context. Um, you know, um, <laughs> uh, you know, the last book I, I actually read, um, I just finished it yesterday. Um, it, you know, it's a, it's a bestseller right now. Um, it talks about, um, you know, how, how, and sorry for the language, but it's just the name of the book, um, is, you know, the, you know, the, the secret of how not to give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and basically it's it's 
it, it really talks a lot about how do you, um, um, how do you, you know, how do you prioritize the things that you actually invest yourself into, right? Because you can't care about everything, right? So how do you prioritize that in your content? Another book that I'm reading right now is, is sort of about winning um, that, you know, really is a, is a, uh, a behavioral dissertation around, um, what creates a, the winning effect, right? And, and one of the big lessons out of that talks about a study where, uh, a mouse, you know, a mouse is trained in essence to be a winner and then gets pitted against an equal mouse. And the one that's been trained to be a winner overcomes that, that equal, uh, over and over and over again, and, and then connects it to like when Mike Tyson was, you know, coming back up through and how, you know, different elements work in that context. And so that's the winning effect is something that's, you know, really interesting on the behavioral side. And so what I try to take from a lot of these books and a lot of these stories and a lot of these, you know, emotional elements come back and really talk about um, how do you, how do you measure yourself um, and then translate that into an execution process that will then creates a winning effect, right? So the, the book is called um, Measure, Execute, Win. And, and, and so in that context, it's a lot of like real case study, um, detailed research information around cognitive biases, around how those things are pushing um, decisions into the spectrum um, of business and the net effect that that's having on outcomes. And so that gives you, you know, it's a good airplane kind of a thing. And then I'll be having another book coming out later this year um, that is more about um, really looking at the, you know, the path to insight. You know, how are we, how are we garnering that insight to help us make much more precise uh, decisions as leaders, um, and it connects to a lot of the stories over my career, you know, in uh, different circumstances, which hopefully are um, uh, as entertaining or more entertaining than the, than the dry content in the rest of the book. But you know, helps make the point a little bit more. Very nice. Very nice. So, with your measure, execute, win. I mean, what was the concept behind that book? How did you come up with that one? That one is one that I worked on, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those books that was rattling in my head for a good 15 years. It's just something that it, you know, in talking with different clients and different circumstances, you know, how, you know, clients that again, had very, very powerful ideas, very powerful strategies that they wanted to execute, um, you know, from, you know, uh, banking clients in, in uh, the Pacific Rim to, uh, investment, you know, financial investment clients in the U.S. and, and public sector clients throughout the U.S. and, um, you know, manufacturing clients that were, you know, either acquiring companies um, that were trying to roll new products out, that were trying to modernize their, their technology back office and the struggles they were having, right? And you start to look into it, you know, half, you know, half of all um, acquisitions, as an example, you know, everybody, you know, as the entrepreneur, you, you're, you're, you know, for many, the goal is to be acquired, right? I'm going to put this thing out, we're going to do this thing, and I'm going to, I'm going to go get bought, and I'm going to have a great life. Well, the reality is that half of acquisitions actually detract value from the acquirer. So after they've acquired you, their value actually goes down. Right? 30% of acquisitions do nothing for the acquirer. 20% of acquisitions actually increase the value 
of the acquirer. And so this is 20 years of data that tells you this, you know, and the metrics around it. And what it comes down to is the integration between the acquirer and the acquiree. How well was that integration process done? Because most entities, you know, kind of treat it what I call like running a, a bus into the side of a building. You know, that's how violent the integration is. And it doesn't work. Right. And that's where the failure point is. That's the number one failure point of an acquisition is the integration process. And so it's it's taking that content and synthesizing it into something that will allow you to act better moving forward, make better data-driven decisions. I mean, with that last statement, it's an interesting one because I mean, you're talking about acquisitions and in today's market, and correct me if I'm wrong, usually if you're trying to acquire someone, it's kind of like you want to build something, but they already have it. So you're going to acquire it and start from there, or they have a database of your target audience and it's probably cheaper for you to buy that versus trying to scale or farm or market to it and grow your own list. So with that being said, does that fall into the 30% of failure or does that fall into the 20% of, of victories? It comes down to culture alignment. Mm. So it's irrelevant. Like the product match is irrelevant. Um, you know, it's a very famous case study, you know, where Dell rolled out um, uh, kiosks at Walmart to sell high-end computers at Walmart. And when I talk to, you know, strategists, you know, in the sort of, in, in, in sort of as part of panels or whatever, you know, the strategists are like, you know, that, that was an execution failure. And I'm like, how is that an execution failure? That's an idea failure. That idea was horrible. The execution was flawless. The advertising was great. The kiosks were, were well done. The computers were right there, ready to be purchased. They worked, right? It, you know, it, all the execution parts worked great. The idea was terrible. Like, really, you're going to sell a high-end Dell at Walmart. I mean, there is an entire website dedicated to the people of Walmart and all of the, the zany behavior that you see going on there. And you're going to sell a high-end Dell at a Walmart and think that that's going to be your channel? That's an idea failure, not an execution failure, right? And so the, you know, the thing that, that I think, you know, <laughs> you know, gets back to it is that it's, there's a lot of great ideas do you have the ability to pull it off? And are you in alignment to pull that off? Um, and, and, and that comes down on, in the acquisition space, it comes down to cu fundamental culture and values. Um, you know, we, we believe in our company that our culture is our greatest asset. And that our culture is, is lived through our values. And so as a result, you know, we emphasize that deeply. Um, but when your culture and values do not align with the person or the company that's buying you, it doesn't matter how good your client base is or your product is. If you're in conflict from day one, it's just not going to work. With that being said, right, this is going to like final words of wisdom. And let's say you're talking to a corporation, they could be any scale of corporation. What insight or final words would you want to tell that individual person to take heed to what you just said? Well, what I, you know, really what I, what I drive at is you got to start to connect the dots a little bit, right? In the context that 
it's one thing to come up with an idea or an innovation or a, a direction, a strategy that you want to go into. And then you're handing that off into an environment where largely the people, process, and technology are probably not going to fit what that outcome needs. Right? And so you're going to go through that process and you may have some misalignments and you may get like, let's say 70%, 60% of what you originally wanted out of that effort. Um, and you get it to work being in an acquisition, new product, whatever, right? But you repeat that cycle over and over again. And what starts to happen is you're starting to really demoralize your teams and your people and your culture. Because, you know, for the listener out there, I'm sure that you've been in a position where you have leadership making decisions and you keep getting thrown into projects and you get keep getting thrown into efforts that never materialize as a win, right? So as a human being, we need to win. Like we actually need to see things through and actually I want to see the, the lawn mowed. You know, that's, I think that's why some people love mowing the lawn because they can actually see the level of accomplishment. And when you get in professionally continuously thrown into situations where you never see a positive outcome, it doesn't enhance your career. You're, 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 you're now in this, in this COVID era where you're working remotely, you're dealing with a lot of, of personal um, challenges to yourself uh, and around you and your friends and colleagues. And, and on top of that, you're still not on winning efforts, right? It chips and chips and chips away. And that's why you're starting to see this mass attrition out of large scale entities because leaders in those entities haven't recognized the fact that they just can't keep throwing stuff over the wall you know, or to your point, throwing it on the wall and having it stick and that being your strategy for how you're going to move forward. Right. It's like, you know, it's like how, you know, theoretically it's, you know, you put all these ideas up on a wall and you start throwing spaghetti at it, whatever spaghetti strand sticks to the box. That's the idea. That's the one you go with. Right. I mean, how many times can you go through that without utterly demoralizing your workforce to the point, the point that either become apathetic or they leave. And so you have to connect the dots in the sense of, does the idea match the capability? And if there are the mismatches, take the time to make the correction, get alignment. And now you're going to get a lot more traction in the execution process. That's going to get you to more outcomes in a repeated way, knowing that every situation has different blind spot factors that you have to measure for. You can't gut it out. And then when you do that, you start to suddenly collect this momentum in your workforce, in your teams that are now truly believing in you as a leader, believing in the mission of the company and their ability to succeed, which being the winner effect, right? That, you know, winning garners more winning in the context that you start to understand what it takes to win and pushing that forward. Because without that, it's, it's what's happening now is this disassembly of the large American corporate institution, right? In the sense that the talent pool is leaving. They just cannot sustain, you know, the, the impacts of COVID in their lives, both professionally and personally. And on top of that, I'm still having to go back and not seeing the victories that I need as an individual, as a professional to continue in my, in my career going forward. Definitely very insightful. So if someone is looking to get in contact with you, how could they find you? Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Alex Castro, um, also at uh, www.the-mcorp.com, T-H-E-mcorp.com. Um, and um, on YouTube, you can see videos of interviews and, and speaking. Um, 
So I'm, you know, you do Alex Castro M Corp and it's pretty easy to, to track them down. Nice. Nice. So I got a bonus question for you and I'm really intrigued to see what your answer is going to be for this question. If you could spend 24 hours with anyone dead or alive, uninterrupted for those 24 hours, who would it be and why? Um, you know, it's going to be a really lame answer. Um, I would spend, you know, those 24 hours with my family. Hmm. I mean, you know, there's, I really take to heart that, that sort of, uh, that statement is like, never meet your heroes, you know, because, because they, you know, I've been disappointed a few times. And, um, and I think that I would, I would rather cherish that time with my family and have dedicated time with them. Um, above you know pretty much anybody else um you know i can i can watch interviews with them and watch you know whatever you know read a book that they did or whatever um, but i can never get that time back with my with my family and um you know unfortunately in the role i am and what i do with my personality set it's like i don't have that as much of that dedicated time as i would love and so uh, i would take that but the answer so i'll answer so Going into closing, man, I always like to give opportunity to whoever I'm interviewing to make them the host of the Boston Cage podcast. And so the microphone is yours. Do you have any questions that you would like to ask me? Yeah. You know, where where do you see the trend in entrepreneurship going? You know, based on all the people you talk to, um, where do you see, you know, sort of the momentum driving? Um, how are you seeing that evolve? So I would say probably in the last... 18 months more so in the last six months going more into the virtual space. And it's kind of like, it's been there. It's always been there, but now with the, the add on of NFTs and monetization of it, now it's kind of like real estate people can understand it. Right. Then you have investors mm -hmm. that can understand it. Now you have artists that could understand it. You have corporate individuals that are starting to understand it. And it's kind of like the first time that we've had all these different principles understanding in one structure, kind of like the dawn of the internet. At first people were like, what the hell is that? Well, I don't know. That's never going to work. And it's kind of like it's that all over again in that, that spectrum in that space. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good answer. I mean, I didn't understand. I really didn't get the NFT world until the virtualization kicked in. And the minute that the, 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 the second that virtualization really kicked in, it's like, ah, I get it now. <laughs> now, now that, you know, that that non fungible uh, fungible token is going to really uh that's gonna that's where the value is gonna come from. I think that that's gonna yeah. be a yeah. crazy it's, space. It just takes internet to a whole another level and you know, with the whole metaverse on top of it, you know, I think mm -hmm. solid move for Facebook to do what they did when they did it. And I think people are like, What the hell? Why are they doing that? And like now, six months later or whatever, now you can kind of see, aha, now you have opportunity mm -hmm. to buy digital real estate and then all the metaverse makes perfect sense with all the aspects of what's going on in that spectrum. Right. And then you also have all the investors that are like bidding, you know, biting at the chops to drop a couple million dollars on any one of these projects. So. Yeah. 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 Cool. Very good. Yeah. Great answer. Appreciate it. So I, I definitely, I enjoyed this interview and um, I just want to say thank you for taking time out your day. I mean, it was pretty early this morning we got on. So I definitely appreciate you. Appreciate your insights. Mm -hmm. Appreciate what you're doing for entrepreneurs. Yeah, you bet. Thank you so much for giving me the platform and the opportunity to speak with you. And um, I hope for the listener, it was it was worth your time. <laughs> Definitely. Hey, Grant, over and out.
Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncaged. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an Uncaged Trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762-233-BOSS. That's 762-233-2677. I would love to hear from you. Remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss Uncaged are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.